Hello, it's Rose. Um, this is the bonus episode for the cement episode of Flash Forward, uh, the cement ban. Um, and I want to talk about a couple things. One is about Roman concrete, which I mentioned in the episode, and we did not have time to talk about um, on the full show, so we're doing it here. So concrete is obviously really, really old, right? So it doesn't start with the Romans. There's actually evidence of people using something like concrete as far back as 6500 BC, which is like a really long time ago. Um, but the most famous form of concrete is probably Roman concrete. And maybe you have heard that Roman concrete is this super special secret formula that they had that we still can't crack. There are a lot of examples of stuff like this that we think maybe in the past they had some sort of secret that we didn't really know about or that we can't figure out. Um, Roman fire is another one that we won't get into, but Roman concrete is one that people talk about a lot. Somehow Roman concrete is really strong. You know, the Pantheon is still around. Um, you know, there's a big question about whether or not our buildings that we build out of modern concrete will be around for as long as the Pantheon has been around. Um, but not everyone is totally on board with this idea that Roman concrete is particularly special or something that we should really try to emulate. Um, so Grady is actually kind of skeptical about whether it's true that the Romans had some some sort of like magical secret formula. One of the things I didn't mention on the video, but I think is worth pointing out is this thing called survivor bias or survivorship bias, which is, you know, we only notice that these grand structures that have lasted so many years because they're still around. And there's, there's probably plenty of structures that didn't survive um, that were built of inferior materials that, you know, that we're not really taking into consideration when we think about Roman concrete being better than what we have now. And it actually turns out that there is some debate in the field. Um, so some historians and archaeologists say, you know, we know what makes Roman concrete different. We've analyzed the ingredients and we actually have recipes written by the Romans. So we kind of know what goes into it. So it's not really a mystery. But other historians and engineers and archaeologists argue that even though we have these recipes, we don't actually know why the material behaves the way it does. So it's very clear that Roman concrete is not the same as concrete that we use today. It's not the same as the Portland cement version that we use or even some of the other versions that we use. There is something else going on here. And just because we have the recipe doesn't necessarily mean that we know why they did it the way they did and why it has the properties that it has, right? So I guess it's like you could have the recipe for a cake, but if you don't know certain things or you might put the cake together and it like still doesn't necessarily answer the question of like what people ate. And this is common, right, in history. We have recipes for stuff like food, but we don't necessarily know exactly how they prepared it on the detail side. So we might know what goes into a dish, but we don't necessarily know how it was presented or what it was supposed to look like. Um, if you've ever watched The Great British Bake Off, you are familiar with this concept, right? That you can have a recipe and still not really know like what it's supposed to do or what it's supposed to look like. Um, and so there are a couple of really interesting papers here that look into Roman concrete and try to kind of break it down and figure out why it behaves the way that it does. So I will put a couple of the papers that I found really interesting about this in the notes for this bonus episode, but one of them from 2017 found that some Roman concrete is full of these tiny crystals, and they have this really cool name that I'm probably going to say wrong, which is Aluminous Tobermorite, Aluminous Tobermorite. 
that might not be right, but that's I think that's how it's pronounced. And these crystals have this unique property where they actually grow bigger when exposed to salt water. And this is a big deal because often, like we mentioned in the episode, when you put modern concrete in salt water, it breaks down because salt water is really, really corrosive. But the Romans actually built these seawalls and put all this concrete in water that is still around today. And so people are like, why, how did that happen? How are they, how did they manage to do that? So this is really cool, right? They have these crystals in them. And when the salt water gets into this material, the crystals actually get bigger and the material gets stronger. Um, and this is very, very cool. Uh, but <laughs> if we tried to replicate this method today, it would take away one of the main advantages of modern concrete, which is that it's really cheap, right? We talked about this on the episode. Engineers love concrete because it is super inexpensive. Aluminous tobermorite is super rare and really expensive to make. And this is another thing that Grady pointed out to me when we were talking. And that's that, you know, even if we knew what Roman concrete was made of exactly, and even if we knew the exact recipes, using Roman methods of building today would be kind of absurd. You know, a lot of those Roman structures that we think of, like the Colosseum and the Parthenon, those were constructed in a, in a method that, you know, they used really large quantities and large volumes of concrete. And so um, just the cost of those structures alone is really, really high. And so it's not really a it's not a good comparison to compare it to modern infrastructure where we're trying to be more efficient. We're trying to be um, better stewards of the taxpayer's money. And so, you know, we do have to make compromises with infrastructure that maybe the Romans didn't have to make when they were building those structures. Remember, these Roman structures were mostly built by slaves. The economies and methods of the Pantheon's construction are not exactly something that we might want to emulate. Um, but, you know, if we can figure out a cheaper way to make these aluminous tobermorite crystals, um, there are some people who think that we could use that to create a method or create a material that can be used in seawalls. And obviously with climate change, seawalls might become more and more important. Um, and so there is actually a researcher in San Francisco who is looking into that and is trying to figure out if there's a way to use some of the volcanic soil here in the area in San Francisco to kind of emulate that same kind of crystal structure that the Romans used. Um, and maybe, they, maybe they'll figure something out that's very cool. And that's really interesting. I'll, I'm keeping an eye on that. Um, but it's also worth remembering that, like, you know, we've we've had a lot of scientific uh, interest in concrete. There's been a lot of science that's, that, that's been put into concrete. So even if we don't do it the same way the Romans do, um, the idea that Roman concrete is somehow more advanced or more technical or better, um, Grady is actually not super convinced that that's true. There's so much sophistication right now in concrete mix design and how we design and specify concrete structures that I would find it um, pretty hard to believe that the con that the ancient Roman ancient Western Roman Empire you know had a secret that made their concrete better than what we can do now I think this is really still an open debate I think there are probably things about Roman concrete that we don't understand um, and that could be super useful for future building materials um, I don't totally buy the idea that just because we've put a lot of research and science into something it's necessarily better than the version that people had in the past that doesn't necessarily hold up there's some pretty obvious counterexamples to things like that 
That said, it's also really easy for us to buy into these sort of romantic ideas that, you know, in the past they had it all figured out and there's this sort of secret lost knowledge, you know, that we if we just uncovered it, we could build the strongest, best material. You know, I think probably the truth lies somewhere in between, which is sort of always what happens. I know it's very complicated and annoying, but I think that's probably what's going on here. Okay, um... That was all I was going to say about the episode that you just heard. Um, okay, so another thing I will talk about is that last week, I think I mentioned this, but I'm doing a talk slash live show, sort of an in-between a talk and a live show, it's sort of an augmented talk next week at the Exploratorium in San Francisco. Um, and it's pegged to the 50th anniversary of ARPANET, which is a pre-internet technology that kind of helped lead to the internet. Um, and this talk that I'm doing is, um, it's about what it would take for us to collectively decide to sort of shut down the internet. Um, and it's, it's based on an episode that I did way back in season one. And one of the things in that episode, um, uh, it's called The Day the Internet Broke. Um, I talked to a historian named Finn Brunton, and he sort of walked through a couple of different ways he could imagine the internet basically going away. Um, and one of them, and the one that he thought was actually sort of most likely, is uh, sort of a moral panic, this idea that we all sort of decide that the internet is bad, that the internet is not worth the risk. You know, even if it does provide some good things, um, maybe we all decide that there's too much risk in having the internet around. Um, and so... Um, I'm going to play you a clip now from Finn from that interview all the way back. I think it was in 2014 or 2015. Like something deeply cognitively dangerous starts to take shape on the network. Um, some kind of comprehensive social madness. Um, something that is perhaps perhaps it is sort of conveyed through, you know, particular kinds of cultural systems that are augmented by technologies, media technologies that are still very new, that we're still only really getting used to and figuring out what they can do to us. Um, maybe in retrospect, we will see all of those children uh, who are like utterly immersed in touchscreen devices. We're actually being primed for the arrival of a new religion, perhaps, um, a new apocalyptic cult that spreads like wildfire. So for the live show version of this, I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I'm going to talk about recent moral panics that have involved technology. There are some really great examples from further back in history, things like the Children's Crusade. Um, but we've also had moral panics around the internet before, um, and that has actually already driven policy. I'm not going to spoil it too much, but what I'm doing now actually is um, I'm creating a sort of fictional scene to have sort of play out on stage at the Exploratorium where people, two politicians and then a, a, a husband and wife, um, kind of debate what they think about this. And I'm sort of basing a lot of this off of um, recent votes, recent memes, the ways that things like Brexit unfolded. I think that there is some good evidence that people weren't totally clear on what they were even voting for when they voted for or against Brexit. Um, and then now, of course, we have the sort of fallout from that, which I won't even pretend to understand. I spent like a day the other week trying to figure out what the heck was going on with Brexit, and I still don't get it. I'm still very confused. I've asked my friends who live in the UK, and they're like, no one knows. It's very confusing. Um, but 
I'm using that kind of as a, um, a template almost for a way that um, a vote on something like this could happen or could play out. So I'm actually making a bunch of memes to play or to show on the screen behind me when I talk. And then we're going to have actors there. We're going to play out some some interesting scenes. It's going to be really fun, I think. Um, I hope I can pull it off. It's like next week and I'm sort of behind on working on it. Um, but I think it should be fun. And so, yeah, so if I have, a, I'll ask them to record it. So if I have a recording of it, I'll, I'll put it out in this feed um, after the show. So that'll be after the 4th. Um, and so that way you can hear it if you can't come. But if you can come to the Exploratorium on the 4th of April in San Francisco, um, I would love to see you. I will have like stickers and stuff. It's part of their After Dark programming, um, which means that it is 18 plus. So if you have kids, they cannot come, um, which I apologize for. I tend to try to make all my shows um, all ages, but that doesn't always work out because I don't always do the programming or like the venue spotting. So it is after dark. If you want to come to the Exploratorium, um, it's part of the 50th anniversary of the Exploratorium. Um, and we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about, right, the end of the internet. And the other talk actually looks really cool. It's about psychedelic drugs and sort of the psychedelic era in the 1960s and the ways in which policy and politics kind of got in the way of research. And so you're going to hear from a researcher about that. So that I'm actually really excited about that. That'll be really cool. And if you've never been to the Exploratorium in San Francisco and you happen to be in the San Francisco area, it's a really cool place. It's got all sorts of cool hands-on stuff to do. Um, I really like going there just like on a, day, a regular day to go play with all the stuff they have. Um, it's really cool and fun. Okay, the other thing people have asked, I, I asked at the end of last episode what I should talk about on these, um, and people asked what I was reading. So I will tell you a little bit about what I'm reading, although I suspect it will be slightly anticlimactic because I'm reading a lot of really um, like technical, historical, sort of academic books right now that I find super fascinating, but that are not necessarily like a fun read. So I'll walk you through four books that I'm reading right now um, and talk a little bit about them. So um, one of them is called The Shock of the Old. Technology and Global History Since 1900 by David uh, Edgerton. Um, I think that's how you say his name. Um, and this book basically is sort of the counter argument to Alvin Toffler's Future Shock. So Future Shock kind of argues that progress is happening faster and faster and faster. And we feel this sort of um, shock of, um, you know, everything is happening all the, all the time. The future is now like there's technology changing so quickly. We can't keep up with it. Um, and it's just sort of accelerating at an exponential pace that um, progress and technology and innovation is happening faster and faster and faster and faster. And um, this book, um, it's written by this historian, David Edgerton, and he kind of argues that that's not true. And he goes through history and he goes through a ton of examples and sort of provides, I think, a really compelling actually argument that, in fact, um, progress is not exponentially increasing um, and that we have bought into that narrative in part well, for a variety of reasons, but in part because um, capitalism and technologists want us to believe that, right? Um, they want us to invest our money in this thing because they tell us that, you know, they're making faster and faster progress, which is this good, seen as this sort of unalloyed good. Uh, and yeah, and I think it's it's really interesting. So I'm not done with the book. I'm about halfway through, but um, I've, I've been really enjoying it. And um I got to take it out for, oh, I got, I got all these books out from the UC Berkeley library, by the way, which I didn't know, I did not know this. I don't know if you maybe already know this, but for $100 a year, if you are a resident of California, you can get a library card, at least at UC Berkeley, I'm assuming at all of the university libraries, UC libraries, um, and you can take out 10 books at a time. Um, and you just show up and you pay them and you get the books. So I got these books from the University of Berkeley, UC Berkeley's library, which is um, very cool. Um, so that's that first book. The second book is a book called Medieval Futures, Attitudes to the Future in the Middle Ages. Um, 
which is sort of a series of essays um, or a series of pieces um, from a variety of contributors. And um, it's about, right, the p- way people thought about the future in the Middle Ages. Um, I think that there's this interesting question in history uh, about the future, which is about when do we start thinking about the future as something that is different than today? Um, which, you know, seems like an obvious thing. Like today we take for granted that, of course, the future will be different than today. But that wasn't necessarily a given um, in a lot of human history, right? Um, For a lot of human history, what we did day to day wasn't that different. And this idea that even from the beginning of your life to the end of your life, the world would be radically different was was not really around, right? Um, which is really interesting, <laughs> um, I, I think. Um, and so this is this, yeah, this collection of um, of pieces by historians who kind of think about the ways in which, you know, theology and prophecy and all of these sorts of ways of thinking about the future um, coalesced and sort of changed over time and um, and sort of shaped the way we think about the future today. Um, so this is, it's really interesting. It's, um, I, I'm not like a historian, although as you all know, I love history. So there are definitely a lot of things that I have to Google in this book where they'll mention as of like, of course, you know, about, you know, this law in medieval France. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I do a lot of Googling, um, with, uh, in this book, um, because I don't really know very much about, right, like 1390s France, but it is super interesting. It's just kind of slow going, um, because it's really written for historians and not for regular human beings like me. Um, the third book I'll talk about is called A History of the Future. Perhaps you're sensing a theme here. <laughs> These are all kind of in the same genre, but it's by Peter J. Bowler, and it's called A History of the Future, Prophets of Progress from H.G. Wells to Isaac Asimov. And this one actually goes through kind of looking at and interrogating um, the ways that people predicted the future and the visions for the future that people had through history. Um, so the chapters are organized um, by kind of themes. So there's, you know, how we'll live, where we'll live, communicating and computing, getting around, taking to the air, war, energy and the environment. So kind of going through and like looking at, okay, when it comes to um, war, like how did various um, science fiction and technology people predict or what did they predict was ha- going to happen, um, and whether that did or didn't come true, and then also sort of how those predictions reflect on the time that they were made in. Um, so that's it's that's really interesting. And the last one is called Histories of the Future. It's also an edited collection um, from a, a handful of scholars, most of whom were um, at this UC Irvine event in, I think it was like 2000 or 2001, it's a series of, of really actually accessible essays about various examples of ways people think about the future. Um, and um, it's been really interesting to read and it's got some really good uh, old school photo or like, you know, scans of illustrations um, like one from 1910 where it shows people um, with these like motorized wings um, playing tennis over like a raised net. So it's like you're playing like jetpack tennis, which I would really love to play. That seems really fun. But it also, again, kind of contests the idea that um, the future is like an apolitical space and this idea that the future is sort of um, open and and has no sort of cultural relevance. So those are the four books I'm reading right now. Obviously, they have a theme between them all. And obviously, they're all kind of like academic and a little uh, wonky. (laughs) But that's sort of um, I love those sorts of books because I feel like they're often full of like weird gems. Um, 
In terms of reading for pleasure, um, I did finally finish City in the Middle of the Night, which is the book club uh, book for this month, and I'm really excited to talk to folks about it. So if you are a $7 and up patron and you have not joined the book club, um, please do that. It's it's going to be fun. Um, I just talked to Charlie Jane Anders, who's the author of the book that we're reading, and we're kind of trying to figure out what might make sense for her to either like do a Q&A or for her and I to have a conversation, you know, with some of listen, some like reader questions or what that might look like. So, um, so yeah, so that's really fun. Um, I, I did really like that. So if you haven't read that book, I highly recommend it. Um, if you are in the $7 and up floating city and up, uh, <laughs> um, world of Patreon, um, please do join the Slack. We're talking about the book. Um, and I think that's everything that I have to say today. Um, I hope that was interesting. I don't know if it was or not. Um, Next week is the last episode of this mini season. Um, And so uh, there will be one more after yesterday's episode and then a little bit of a break. Um, And uh, we'll come back, like I said, with bodies. Um, And I'm almost done picking those episodes. So that should be really fun. Um, and in the meantime, uh, I don't know if we'll do, if I have something to talk about, I guess I'll do like a, you know, bonus episode, but, um, if not, probably not, cause I'll be working on the show. Um, and I don't know what I'll cut from each episode yet, but, um, but yeah, that's all I have to say, I think. Uh, yeah, again, as always, let me know what you want to hear about in these, uh, behind the scenes episodes and I will talk to you next week. Bye.